Hi, folks. Steve Urban here. Today's episode of the Rutterflex podcast is sponsored by Marketing 360. My good friend J.B. Kellogg and his team do such a fantastic job for us and so many other companies. Marketing 360 is the number one platform for small business, and it's everything you need to grow your business. If you need marketing support, I really encourage you to contact them at marketing360.com slash writerflex, and we'll add that link to the description of this episode for easy reference. And on today's episode of the Writerflex podcast, we have guest Damiante Dipiana. She is the co-founder and CEO of Manity, a digital platform that empowers mental health providers and families by integrating therapy into daily life. Dama Dipayana on the Rider Flex podcast. Yeah. How you doing, Dama? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being on the show. I uh, studied you the last couple of days getting ready for the podcast. Interesting story. Um, looks like you're doing some cool things with manatee. I always respect. I, the, I always respect the people that have the guts to step away from a regular job and start their own business. <laughs> Before we get into the, the business part, tell us about you personally for the listeners. Give us a nice uh, Dama overview, where you grew up, family, things like that. Sure. Um, I grew up in the Netherlands in a city called The Hague. It's beautiful but boring. It's where the government is. It's at sea. It's wonderful. Um, I went to university in London, um, studied international business and global banking, um, I have an amazing family. I guess I'm biased because it's my family, but um, I am married with a husband and I have two young kids. Uh, third is on the way. So uh, we're busy and it's really exciting that everyone's at home. Like genuinely, yes, it's kind of crazy, but it's also nice that the whole family's together. So I have one three-year-old um, turning four in December and one who almost turned two. So they'll all be mm -hmm. very close together. Wow, it's busy at your house. So you got two toddlers, basically, one on the way, and you decided to start a company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, just a little bit busy at your place. Tell us about your early career uh, before we get into manatees. So after school, walk us through some of the things you did and then kind of transition into how you decided to move, move away from being an employee and, and being an entrepreneur. Yeah, so I think I always have been super independent. Um, and I think that was kind of like the foundation for starting my own business. I never thought about it like, ooh, I want to become an entrepreneur. Like that was never a thing that I considered or thought about. But I was really young. Like when I was 11, I already had a job and I made my own money. When I was 15, really? I went to Greece for a whole summer to work. I just really liked the independence. I if I wanted to buy new jeans, then I want to be able to buy new jeans, whether I was 14 or, you know, whatever. So I always said that. Um, so I guess my early career was like, and I love working hard. I just, I don't know. I, I spent my, I want to say my 15 up until 18 years, I probably worked outside of like school and stuff. I worked five nights a week. I wow. okay. made a lot of money like behind bars and tips and it was like my favorite thing to do. Um, 
weirdly enough. I also had friends, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so the work, the, work ethic, the work ethic was always there, but not necessarily an entrepreneurial bug. You didn't have that back then. Okay. What's your, what's your folks no. do? What's your parents do, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so my dad always traded stocks and everything. So he's basically a professional gambler. I don't know how else you want to the financial market. Um, and my mom actually is uh, probably the one who inspired me. Like she always worked in sales, but she runs like big tenders. So she worked for big tech companies from, you know, Dell in the early days to... Um, and then she ran procurement for like ING Bank. So she did both sides of the table, but she's always worked in, in sales and technology. Okay, gotcha. All right. I was just curious as to, you know, the work ethic and the entrepreneurial stuff. I, I'm always curious as to whether or not that comes from the parents or how they guided you. So so when you, when you got out of school, um, did you know what you wanted to be? Did you know what you wanted to do? Did, yeah, go ahead. What, what was the plan? <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I think, I also, I want to preface this with, I think growing up in the Netherlands is so different versus growing up in mm. the U.S. Tell us, tell me, give me some details. I think the academic pressure that kids have in the U.S. is really insane, personally. Um, mm. I think that there's a real combination of like education being so expensive and actually education being really important where and there's a lot of variability within education in the U.S., whereby if you don't go to a good school, that actually will impact your future income. Um, but it's unfortunate that that future income is also tied with the current income that you have, because if you don't have money, you can't go to a good school. Now, that means that kids are really pressured into academic performance. So scores and, and tests and all of those things and your extracurricular activities are super important so you hopefully can get a scholarship or get into a good school now mm. on the flip side in the netherlands i mean i don't i love being dutch but i think everything is much more like of the ground so every school is pretty good is it a harvard or a yale probably not but is it just good solid education yes mm. It's cheap. You don't have to pay for it. So that means that I guess throughout the whole process, there's just let, like nobody really, I think just in general, kids don't really know what they want to do because that's a really daunting question. But yeah. we at least in the Netherlands have a little bit more luxury to figure it out because the, um, the impact is not as big. It's not like your tuition is $50,000 and it's not like if you don't, do this, then you may not get a job and therefore on the street because, right. you know, there's no social system either. So I think because of that point being to answer your question, no, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Also, I took a lot of time and I think that's very different. That's a luxury that I think a lot of young people in the U.S. just unfortunately don't have. So I was 17 when I graduated high school. I got into med school realized that that was not what i wanted to do oh, oh really well i didn't know that okay you were you were thinking yes, you was, might you might want to be a doctor maybe at some point i really wanted to become um a uh, a reconstructive plastic surgeon so wow. i wanted to focus okay. on like birth defects and stuff like that and accidents but okay. like that's a really long road and as a 17 year old i just couldn't commit to that then i took two years off and traveled the world Okay. Like lived in Sri Lanka, Thailand, taught 
skiing, snowboarding in Switzerland. Like literally cool. just did nothing for two years. Like great. With a backpack in the jungle of Sri Lanka. And again, mm. like I know that that's the luxury that most kids probably don't have. But ultimately, it's also really cheap. Like I think oh, I wow. spend maybe 500 bucks a month. You know, <laughs> so at the same time. Love. But anyway. So, so that's what I did. And then um, my mom basically said, like, cool, so you've done two years of traveling. You have to now just do something. <laughs> so that something for me was like uh, international business. <laughs> I was like, you can do business. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, that, great. Um, so that's what I went with. And, you know, I wasn't really passionate about economics or accounting, but... <laughs> You know, it was a, it, it, it was an education. What was your skill? Was your skill set people, relations, sales, marketing? Like, what did you start to fancy yourself as? A relationship person, a salesperson, a marketing person? How did you, how were you bucketing yourself? I honestly don't think I know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, uh, I, I, I knew what I liked. I like, so the thing is, I really, growing up, I really liked, science and biology and like that's also like in the Netherlands high school slightly different like you have to choose a direction and my direction was biology and science so then your high school subjects are also math science biology so I really love that so I don't think that there was I kind of like global banking I like economics I like kind of how markets work and I like technology I hated accounting I was very bad at that but yeah, I would say like more that direction. I like I like technology, and I think that's also what ended up like what what put me in my first job, and ultimately really liking working. And, gotcha. And your the longest career at any one company you had before you started Manatee was was Cubit, right? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. And what were you, what was your function there? Were you relations? Were you strategy? Were you sales? What were you what, you, what were you doing there primarily? Yeah, so I mean, I want to say that I owe Cupid so much. Like mm-hmm. it was, I grew up with that company, so I would say I started. I mean, we all started like figuring it out. It was one of like their kind of early stage, first like non technical hires. Um, okay. We had like a dev team, and we were trying to figure out like their professional services and account management team. So I was actually the first that was hired to ultimately, once we signed the client, to figure out what to do with them and support them and run the project. So how that evolved fast forward was actually building out teams when we expanded into the U.S. So I went from actually like being somewhat junior. I had a bunch of jobs before that and I worked in fintech and like, sure, I was a project manager, but I feel like that really established me where I felt I was the first time, like, a manager, and all of a sudden, I was responsible for people, so I grew a lot in that time span, and then we closed our Series A, and I moved to New York to build out our professional services and customer success teams in the U.S., Ah. and then we grew significantly with, you know, our Series B, our Series C, like, I mean, it became we actually matured from kind of a startup where you just do everything and there's not that much discipline around stuff to like an actual company. And did you, uh, were you early enough as an employee that you got equity before they started? uh, Did you, did you, did you get a payday there? Can you share that or no? 
<laughs> I mean, I wish I mean, we're still in the process, um, but I think we raised significant amount of money, so we'll have to we'll have to see how okay. it turns out. But we haven't have had a, a liquidation event yet. I see, I see, I see, no event yet. Okay, but I'm hopeful. I'm <laughs> I believe okay. in the team. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you had a great career there and you helped, helped them build it. Great experience. What happened? When did the, when did the entrepreneurial bug happen for you? Walk us into the transition when you decided to leave there. Yeah. I mean, I, I left because I felt I left on really good terms. I had a pretty big, so we went through restructuring and I think anybody, any entrepreneur, I mean, if you're that as lucky as getting, or actually I shouldn't say lucky because there's not, there's a lot of hard work involved too. But if you are part of the very few that gets to growth stage, like you will see that you go from significant growth all of a sudden, now you have to be profitable and growth margin and all of those very different metrics become important. Point being, like we went through a really big restructuring and I led a lot of the efforts to get the gross margin neutral. And after that project, I just felt that my, like, my time had come. Like I'd given everything to the company and I felt that there was nowhere for me to go or grow within okay. the organization. Okay. So that was kind of, I felt like, it, I felt like I ended in a really good spot and I was like, I've given it everything and now someone else can take it over to the next stage. Um, so that was kind of my closing from that company. And then I actually didn't think at all. I mean, I kind of told it was like oh, at some time starting my own business, but I really was just looking at other jobs. I want to take some time off to figure out what I really want to do in my career. And I got to that point where like career progression was just wasn't that important. Like I had a really good salary. Like I, I had a really big T like you know I, I thought I ticked all the boxes that you want to tick to just like I want to be successful yeah so then I was like but what do I actually want to do and I looked at jobs and I just couldn't find a job that I like I like I would be in interviews and I was like oh my god this sounds awful or like <laughs> oh my god I don't want to work for this company or I don't want to work in this team or like they're just I couldn't I honestly like would objectively interview and like really awesome positions and I couldn't get excited about them and I think that was the moment when I That's, realized like yep. I don't think I can get excited about working for anyone else anymore I think that was when I had that realization mm. like I don't want to work for anyone but myself yep. and that's when I started really thinking about starting my own business okay all right very good and then you said okay well I know I don't want to work for anybody else but I have no idea what I want to do <laughs> Well, let me come up with some business ideas. How did you come up? Now, you, you're also the co-founder of Be Frank, right? Which I think is still in existence. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, how did, it, how did that happen? And, and, and go ahead. I really wanted to be part. This Me Too movement started in LA, and I really wanted to be part of the conversation because I felt at that time it was not balanced yet. Um, it was really the perspective of women, which granted, I'm a woman myself. I 100,000% support that, of course. Um, but if there's one thing that I learned to have a productive resolution of conflict, you need to have both parties at the table having a dialogue. And I felt that was really missing. Missing. So the first thing that we did, I was like, huh, it would be really interesting if we could just ask random guys about how they feel about this and what their perspective is. Mm -hmm. And I really want to explore also kind of 
how intimate relationships between men and women are shaped and especially like the gender dichotomy that you have in the US where my perspective in the Netherlands is, I mean, are we, are genders equal? Probably not, but we're very close to that. And I felt relationships are very different. So sexual assault and all of those things in the way that we talk about sex is very different. So I felt like a lot of those underlying things that we actually didn't talk about weren't discussed. So mm. I really want to understand the male perspective of how do you learn about sex? Where do you learn from it? Like, how do you, how do you have a sexual relationship with a woman? Like, how do you feel about this? And I think the more we explored that, the more we realized that there was just a really big gap in the way that people had open dialogue. And that's where Be Frank stemmed from. So we started yeah. with that video and then we started producing more and more videos that really explores this like tough conversations that needed to have an open dialogue. So we did one on like racial inequality, we did like on mental health. So we, you know, we're exploring a bunch of other ones that are really, really interesting. And early on, was it more of a, was it a hobby or did you immediately set a business model to create marketing dollars and things like that? I honestly, I, I don't, I don't think I ever really thought of it as like a scalable business. I okay. thought of it very much as a, uh, I mean, also not to say that a prediction company is not a scalable business. It's not necessarily going to be VC backable. So I always thought of it as in like, I want to set this up. I think it deserves a place in the world, but I really handed it over to my partner who is, you know, an award-winning documentary filmmaker who knows everything around production. So she runs it and I, I am just here to support basically. Um, so I knew that that was going to be the transition. Of the gotcha. Company. Okay. Now, and while, while you were doing that, were you thinking of Manatee and talk to us about how that came about? Cause I think you, wasn't Manatee founded uh, late 2018, I think. Okay. Yeah. So it, I was thinking about it. I just couldn't really crack the problem yet because it was very big. So I knew that I wanted to do something in mental and behavioral health for families and children, but that's such a broad issue. Sorry, Steve, you want to say something? Well, I, why, why did you know you wanted to do that? What's the connection there for you personally? Oh, I, my brother had like grew up with a bunch of mental behavioral issues. So I, see. I, I see. and I felt it was a really big problem regardless. And I had my first, or actually I was pregnant with my second kid by then. So it was also just a topic that I became much I, more soon and passionate about. Okay, gotcha. I was wondering where the emotional tieback was and how that came about. Okay, so you knew you wanted to do something. All right, go ahead. Sorry, I mm -hmm. broke your flow. <laughs> no, all yeah. good. And then I think the next step was, I'm like, all right, cool. So I know what I, but I actually had something that's called a spark file. Um, so I really believe, like, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that actually deters people from starting a business is they think like, oh, you have to have this million dollar idea. And that's not at all how businesses work. Like right. there's a reason why an idea, I mean, ideas are useless. Literally, there's a reason why there's no, not a market for ideas is because they're not valuable. If there would be a, like, if there'd be value to ideas, there'd be a market for it and there's not. So point being is that's not how it works. I always believed in having a spark file, meaning I would write down things that just sounded interesting to me. I'm like, huh? Like I would look at an industry as like that feels antiquated or like, Ooh, there's something happening in that technology space. So I was just 
write down literally like I still have that file still put notes in there and it ranges from I really feel like there are components of the educational system broken like oh what about like sanitary issues and like what about like portable toilets in India like I would just chuck down anything and everything in there and then over time like ideas that seem to have legs because of external stuff often like new technologies coming about or like regulatory pieces changing like they kind of start forming and for me when it came to mental behavior health for me it was really like the adoption of technology but also mental health becoming like a big conversation within like it felt like it was time for people to actually properly address it and I think it also was time where people felt comfortable using technology to address it so for me those two things made it like real like a real business opportunity and I just looked in the market and realized that there was not that much there at all for pediatric mental behavior health care so those components made it just kind of grow but anyone who's aspiring to do something my suggestion would just be like noodle on an idea for like a while like it takes often Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also know that you're going to pivot probably three times (laughs) so I think that's great advice that you shared. If you if you are an, an aspiring entrepreneur and you don't have a specific idea yet, but you know that you want to do your own thing. And I think there's a lot of listeners out there that will probably listen to this episode and they're exactly like that. They know they don't want to work for somebody, but they don't really have an idea yet. What Dama just said, just, just start writing down ideas. Start start keeping a log, start keeping a journal and and the the picture will probably unfold and then eventually it'll probably tie back to something personal and that you're passionate about. And then it'll start to become clear. I think that's really great, great, great story, Mm -hmm. great advice. Okay. So, and then when you finally did kind of decide on pediatric uh, mental health uh, type type things, did you started to look to see if there was competition or somebody else doing it? Couldn't find anything, nobody doing it. Yeah, I felt that there were interesting players in the space, but there was no one who thought about it the same way I did. Okay. So, um, yeah. And also, like, competition is not necessarily a bad thing. I think, right. you know, they're too t- you, it, Like, I would say, like, if you start fundraising and there's no one out there who's doing what you're doing, <laughs> like, that is going to be a red flag. So, um, uh. but I felt that there was a really solid wedge in the market that there was space for a company to really like own that niche and then expand from there. Very good. Okay. Now, did you want it to be an app or did that just happen for you over time? You're like, I want this to be like an app. I want them to use it on the phone. That kind of developed for you as you thought through it. I, I wanted it to be technology enabled. So we, I felt that it needs to be a digital platform. Um, okay. And then obviously the the most obvious thing to reach families is a mobile device. And then for us, for clinicians, it's a desktop. So it's also I see. web I see. I see. Okay, very good. Why don't you give us, um, tell, tell people, give us the Manatee overview as it stands today. And then I want to hit you with some questions, a few more questions on how you, you know, bootstrapped it and all that. But, Let's just go ahead and give the listeners an overview right now. Tell them about Manatee. Go for it. Mm. Yeah. So ultimately, the big problem that I found with therapy today is that 
we don't support families or children in 99% that they're not in therapy sessions. So how do you do that? So I, we really focus first on building a platform that enables therapists to set treatment goals, just like how we all set goals in our business. Like you have a session, you set goals in that session. These are the things that we're going to work on. That does two things. It creates accountability for the parents, keeps them involved. They're like, okay, cool. This is what I'm paying for. Like there's progress here, but it also really empowers the child to, you know, take ownership over their destiny, to get directive support, Mm -hmm. to know what they need to work on. So all in all, that focuses on a bunch of things when it comes to improved outcomes, when it comes to actual ROI pieces for the provider. So that was the first thing. It's like, how do you translate what we're working on in therapy and make it part of the day-to-day? Now, that platform does awesome. Providers use it. We're used by pediatric hospitals. But the big vision of Manatee always has been how do you create this digital behavioral health hub for families and children. So how do we actually, from the bottom up, reimagine what therapy and mental health support looks like for families, whereby parents and families are empowered and supported so they know how to support their children with you know, additional special needs. But at the same time, it's technology enabled. There's so many things you can't do in an analog world. So it's like data-driven. It's, we focus on pro- progress that's been made. We can gamify stuff. We can make it fun for kids. Because if you think about it, no kid wants to sit in a room to talk about their feelings for an hour once every week. No, no. With a stranger. (laughs) Like that's, don't get me wrong. Like you have incredibly amazing psychologists and therapists who are so good at their job. But if you fundamentally look at that model, that's not actually how children feel best supported. Mm, Gotcha. Now is, is your customer your revenue, your revenue comes from families that sign up or from hospitals that suggest to families to use it or both? What's the business model? <laughs> so the business model is a straightforward SaaS model. So we sell directly into health systems. So hospitals, community mental health centers, et cetera. They implement the platform. And then every family who enrolls in their services will use the platform to basically track progress and get their treatment plans. I see. And does, does the family have to pay for it or the family's already paying the, the hospital a certain fee overall and this is part of their service they provide? Is that, is that, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Very the family doesn't pay any additional, uh, additional fees. I see. I see. Okay. And you're selling to major healthcare companies? Who, who are some of the big fish that you've landed so far? Can you name some of them? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are uh, actually part of the digital health lab at Children's Hospital LA, which is one of the largest pediatric hospitals. So that's a big pediatric hospital. And then we're also, um, you know, piloting and working closely together with, um, you know, the largest community mental health center here in Colorado. There's a bunch of other pediatric hospitals that we work with. So yes. And when you got the first, so your first big client was in LA first big hospital was in LA. Is that accurate? Did yeah. I the- oh yeah. The first big hospital was in LA. First client was in Colorado. Okay. Tell me about that first deal you got signed. I just want to, was that you? Was that you like weeks of meetings? Is this, how, how did you convince them? Like, Hey, I know you're not using anything like this, but uh, cause I know that had to feel pretty good getting the first big contract. Was that your proof of concept where you said, wow. Okay. 
we just signed a contract and somebody's actually going to pay us for this product. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, it's, it's a very weird feeling when somebody values what you feel, what was literally in your head that they're now willing to spend money on. That's a very, like, it's a feeling that at least I hadn't really experienced that much before. I don't know about other people, <laughs> but that was a new thing for me. Um, yeah, I think, I think for me, selling is just, it comes down to like empathy, like understanding what pain you're solving for them and that's mm -hmm. what you're solving. And that's mm -hmm. ultimately, so like for me also, when I guess, when I think about building our product and building our platform, it's not that we build stuff because we're like, oh, that sounds cool. But it's literally, we first, we figure out at every single point, like, what's your problem? What's your pain point? Like, what's the challenge? And then you think about how do we solve that? Um, mm. So I mm. think if you solve a big enough problem, people will pay for it. I love that. Necessarily like yeah. weeks of like, no, you're just like, hey, what's your problem? Cool. Like also, even when we started the business, we didn't, I didn't build this platform just because I thought it was going to be a good platform. I really like we built the first a demo that was solely based on feedback from providers. And then we iterated based on that. And then we launched it based on ah, therapy. I, like, I, what do you, you want to solve? I see. From the time you filed the LLC or you, from the time you filed for the company until you got your first check for revenue, what was that? A year, your six months, two years? Um, so, I actually incorporated really early. I don't know why, but I felt like that was an important step for me okay. when there was actually nothing there. So okay. I want to say I filed in 2018. Okay. In, say, July. Okay. And then I was just noodling on the idea, doing market research, like all of that stuff. And then I met my co-founder, who's amazing, in... I want to say end of 2018. It took me probably five months to convince him to quit his job because he had a really good job. He was like an engineering lead for this awesome tech company. And like I convinced, like convincing a co-founder like, hey, you should now become unemployed with me on this idea that is not proven <laughs> at all. That's a hard thing to do. But all right. Yeah. For me, that was so that was March 2019. And I think from so from the, that was the moment when we actually could build something. Okay. And from March 2019 to our first contract, and that was August 2019. That's so pretty that still, that's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. So what I heard you say there was you, you made sure you signed on a co-founder that was a tech, a tech person. So you were, you were sales and marketing and relations and you signed on somebody to handle the, the, you know, code coding and the, the tech piece. Is that, was that the relationship? I mean, I think, that doesn't have to be the relationship, but I think the founding team needs to be able to get whatever you're trying to do to market. Okay. So right. if that's a technical product and you're not technical, you should have a technical co-founder. You have sometimes thing, like single founders who can outsource it, but I think that's harder to do. Now, some of the listeners are going to say to themselves, well, how did she eat and pay the bills? And how did, how did, what, the other guy just quit his job and had no income for six months? And what would you guys have a bunch of savings? Did you, did you uh, get some seed money from friends and family? How did you fund it? Yeah. So I think that's super personal for everyone, like how to figure that out. I will say there are a bunch of ways that you can do this. 
one, you don't have to quit your job. You can do a side gig. You just need to be willing to work hard. Like right. it's the thing is, it's like you, it's all about priorities, right? Like, is that what you want? I also want to say like starting a business is really awful. Like really awful. I would actually, <laughs> unless you are a thousand percent sure and kind of borderline insane, I would just say like, you know, it's, it's, it's much harder than I thought it would be. So, but that aside, I think first, you know, smart founders, you know, will do it, do it like on the side, like figure yeah. things out. Like you don't have yeah. to quit your job, like keep that security. Um, once you have some more conviction, you can choose to quit your job or not. I think in terms of like what we, uh, what I actually did, I did consulting gigs on ah, the side. So okay. I would get like, you know, ah. I would get like a 20K consulting gig and that would keep me running for a little while. Also ah. because I didn't want to work full time for another boss, as I mentioned. <laughs> so that was my perspective. But so like, I think you can either keep it as a side gig. You can, you know, do some consulting projects on the side to kind of like keep going. But the best thing is, is honestly just to get revenue as early as possible and like force you to do that, get to that point. Right. So like you and your co really early, like yeah. get stuff out the door and see if people will pay for it. I think that's great advice. Yeah. That's another mistake I think people make is uh, they, they think it has to be perfect and that whatever it is they're building has to be absolutely perfect before it quote goes to market. Yeah, that's, that's not true. You need to get some revenue, try to get some proof of concept, see if anybody's even interested. You can always pivot and change and tweak as you move along. I totally agree. Now, your, your co-founder, did you say, um, so were you guys like just a sweat equity? You, 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 neither one of us are going to get paid. Well, here's how we're going to divvy up the equity and it's all sweat equity. Or did you guys also put in, you put in some, your own cash to survive or a combination of both probably? Yeah, it was a combination of both. Um, but we also got um, invested, like we were funded by Techstars really early on. So why oh. Techstars. Uh, we were we were funded by Techstars, so they put in uh, one twenty and twenty five. Ah. They put in one forty five k, which obviously ah. helped us run it for a little while. Now, can um, you can you talk about that for a little bit for people that don't know what Techstars is? Can you just tell, give a short, brief story on what you did? You look up Techstars in LA and say, "Hey, I want to come to a meeting." Give us the short version. <laughs> Third version is Texas is an accelerator. There are a million accelerators. They're not all made equal. Um, they kind of like the big two are like Techstars versus YC. Yeah. You can look up the philosophical differences. But anyway, an accelerator's purpose is what the name suggests to accelerate your business. They invest a small, like a small uh, convertible note or save. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, they get a bunch of equity in return, but you get like a three month program usually whatever a program in which you get a lot of mentorship guidance structure and discipline to actually get to the next milestone which in most cases for companies are raising their fees or getting to commercialization or something along those lines so that's what Techstars is or what accelerators are again like there's so many now i would really investigate before you just jump the gun on going into a program um, and what figure out what you want to get out of the program and then how to get into the program. I mean, I think the best advice that I can give is ultimately people are people and there's a lot of risk involved in startups. Know that the business you're pitching 
any investor has probably heard a thousand times. Like there's nothing really special about it. What's special is like your ability to execute. So if you want to get into anything, whether it's getting into an accelerator, whether it's getting funded, I think a lot more value and weight is put not on the idea, but on your ability to show that what you're saying you're going to do, you're actually going to do. So if you want to get in, start the conversation three months before and show or six months before whatever, find who is important in that decision-making process and just show them, Hey, I did this. Oh, like, Oh, I want to give you an update on that. And then they start tracking like this line and they start believing like, huh, this person can at least execute on what they're saying. And I think that's most important for very early stage investors or accelerators, because there's really not that much data besides the team and your execution ability. Really good advice. Uh, Was it worth giving up that early equity? Would you, would you do it again? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I also would, I, I feel like my MD and I would be really upset with me if I said no, but honestly, like I, I think, um, uh. I think it really depends on what you want to get out of it. I know some founders who are like disgruntled about it. I know some founders who say it's life changing and I know anywhere in between. Yeah. The point is what you get out is what you put in. So if you're going to do it, just do it properly, and I assure you, it will pay itself back in Are you um? Are you guys cash flow positive now, or are you trying? Are you are you still kind of at a burn, and you're raising some more cash, or how much can you share? Mm-hmm. So we're actually kind of closing our seed uh, round, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, um, so okay. we're in like the final stages of of raising our seed round. It's kind of crazy the, time to raise raise money. Right. Um, but we are, I mean, you know, we are generating revenue. Um, we have like a good M- MRR that's growing um, and that we focus on, but we certainly uh, need some cash to kind of take ownership over the opportunity that's ahead. Do you find the cash raise piece of it a pain in the ass or, or you enjoy that challenge or where does that rank among all of the other things that you have to do as the CEO? I mean, if you can build a business without raising money, you should. Gotcha. That's the short answer. The longer <laughs> answer is that that is not always possible. Um, and I think just with anything in the business, there are ups and downs. Like there are moments when you have, you, I think if you're going to go down the route of getting, of fundraising, you have to know it's really hard. It's really painful. You're going to get, I think I have 89 funds who said no, like truly. Wow. 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 <laughs> Don't get, and I mean, you, you can't take it personal. Like you, you, you can't, that's not like, that's the name of the game. The majority of funds will say no and yep. you have to, but at the same time, it's an incredible learning opportunity. I think it's very rare that you will have moments in your career, your professional career, that you get to pitch and sell the dream to really smart people, generally really smart people who will really ask hard questions and will nitpick it and will pull it apart. And if you don't use it as a learning opportunity, I think that's you know, just a waste of time. So just know when you're going into it, it's going to be really hard. You're going to get a lot of no's. You can't take it personal, but use it as a learning opportunity and take those data points to refine your story, to think through the risks in your business, to like 
close those gaps because most of the time our investors always write no like there are plenty of investors who said no to google or airbnb or like Mm -hmm. you know like they don't have a you know a glass bowl or like a crystal bowl on their desk they're human but they are really smart and they will help you think through really important components of your business Mm, really good advice how many employees now or what's the team size as of today uh okay so one two three four five 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 and then when you get your uh, series you raise your you raise your next round here you're going to double or something maybe yeah we'll we'll add we'll we'll add some more people for this year What's the, what's been the scariest moment for you so far? What, have you had one of those moments where you just, your husband, you, you, you're at, it's late at night, you're having a glass of wine and you're just like, oh Jesus, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> I mean, all the time. <laughs> Honestly, like, I don't think that a day goes by that I don't doubt what I'm yeah. doing. And that's true for most entrepreneurs, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, and it ranges. Like, I think one thing that I, I know that I'm really, I'm grateful that I have this. I'm actually really like big on positive self-talk. So I, it's very rare that I'm like down on myself, but I, there's, it's a combination of like, is it where like I, because we're also tackling a really big problem that feels really big and scary. Like what keeps me up at night is like, what if I'm building this and actually it doesn't make a difference. Like it doesn't actually help families. I think that's one that kind of like keeps me up at night. And for right, like sometimes like this is not going to work. Like this is, this fundraise is not going to close. Like this is a dumb idea. Like I might not be the right person. Like this is, there is just a million things that you will have doubts about. Um, But, you know, I think, it's not about the absence of fear. It's about working through it. Right. Any um, last uh, pieces of advice for the aspiring entrepreneur who hasn't quit their job and taken the leap, but they, they really want to, what would you tell them? Well, I think now is an interesting time that makes people more fearful, but I would say in every time of difficulty is, also lots of opportunity Mm. um so i wouldn't let that deter you the only thing that i would honestly ask anyone who wants to start a business is why Why? i think that's a really important question to just ask yourself because things will get really hard and when you start thinking about building your team and building a co-founder or like you know building a small founding team, it's like you have to be on the same page as to why you're doing this. Because Mm. is it because of money? Is it because of control? Is it because you feel this needs to exist in the world? Like if you're not on the same page, there are going to be decision moments in your career of building this company where you're just not on the same page. So, and also like there are many ways of maybe getting to the objective that you're looking for. It might not be starting a business. So I would just say in general, it's a really good exercise to do. It's like, why do you want to start your own business? Um, Because that may also be like your guiding compass for when stuff gets hard. Mm. Two more questions. I know we're almost out of time. If you could call the young lady coming out of college before she strapped on the backpack and went, went around the world on her trip and tell her anything, what would you tell her? 
That's good stuff. Last last question. If you had to put Dama's core purpose into a sentence, and I asked you to push that, uh, you know, away from obviously your 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 husband and two two beautiful children. So aside from family being your core purpose is the point. How would you define it? In one sense, it probably paid forward. I think I'm like painfully aware of how privileged I am in like a lot of ways. So I feel like there's really this duty in me to mm. like pay that privilege forward. Like it really upsets me when women in Western civilization say that they're not a feminist. I'm like, that's the luxury position that you can take. There are literally 80% of women in the world are living under massive depression. So mm, for mm. me, it's like, I think for me, my purpose always has been being really acutely aware of the privilege that I'm in and being dutiful and paying that forward to our younger generation or Beautiful. just in general people. Beautiful, Dama. Love it. Beautiful. Thank you so much. You've been an awesome guest. I really appreciate you being on the Rider Flex podcast. I, and by the way, congratulations on getting Manatee to where it's at. And it sounds like you're about ready to close a round of funding. Good for you. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Steve. The Rider podcast features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there, as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviews. Our show can be heard just about anywhere these days, but you can visit riderflex.com and click on the podcast page to hear all the previous episodes and learn more about the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Contact us at the email address info at riderflex.com or 888-964-5876. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy our show, please be sure to subscribe to our channel and like the episodes.